You're about to listen to a new episode of Audio Signals. Get ready to take a journey into the known, the unknown, and everything in between. Recorded at no specific point in time nor space, ITSP Magazine's co-founders Marco Cipelli and Sean Martin follow their passion and curiosity as they venture away from the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society to discover new stories worth being told. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Sean. Once upon a time, it was chapter two. Uh, it was a, a dark and stormy night. <laughs> <laughs> it was a dark and stormy night. The kids were on fire set. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's your thing. That I mean, is my thing. thing. It's passed down from my, uh, from my grandfather. She was, there you go. knows where he got it. But uh, it was a story that all the grand, grandkids got. And that's what are stories are for. Stories are made. Down to pass down from one generation to another. Even before we had the writing, before we had the radio, before we had the TV, before we had the internet. Now it's everything in the internet. The radio is there, the books are there. (laughs) It's all in the internet. It's on someone else's computer called the cloud. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and if you are hacking, either for good or for bad, you may your other computer may be the other person computer. So we can That's go right. there too. But <laughs> I, I think we're kind of like you know starting to lead the way to what this conversation is going to be about. It's audio signals for people that don't know about this. It's a channel where mostly. Uh, Sean and I talk about whatever we we like. It doesn't have to be connected with uh, technology, society, and cybersecurity, but sometimes it does. And this is one of those times. (laughs) No. (laughs) How can you? That's right. But uh, thankfully, it's a topic that I love, and uh, I'm I'm honored to be part of this society uh, of cybersecurity and the community of cybersecurity. And we have somebody who's been been looking at this space for quite a while, Marco, and uh, has spoken to a lot of people, investigated a lot of things, reported on a lot of stuff, and has written a couple books now. That's true. Deb Radcliffe. Deb, what's up? Hey, guys. Nice to be back on the show with you again, Marco and Sean. Yeah. It's always fun. It's always fun. You, you've, been, uh, you've been busy. I've been busy. You guys have even put me to work hosting shows of my own now, too. That's right. I, I know. That's new. <laughs> yeah. So, the the Sidebeat Podcast. You know, COVID, I've just been hiding out here in my little Anai in Maui doing my thing. And third book is almost finished now, too, in my trilogy. Wow. Well, it seems yesterday they were just talking about the first one and you didn't even have a show on ITSP magazine. So look how many things you, you have done. <laughs> I'll say we do this. Let's start with a, a little intro about yourself. And of course, you, as you mentioned, you've been here before. You are on ITSP magazine. So there'll be links to your show in the notes for this podcast and to the 
prior conversation that we had. But for people that are not going to stop now to go listen to that, let's do a little intro by yourself. And uh, yeah, tell us all the things you're up to. Okay, well, my name's Deb Radcliffe. In the olden days when I was young and new in this industry, I used to be Deborah Radcliffe. That's when I wanted people to take me seriously. Um, and now I feel like it's much more user-friendly to go with the shorter version of my name, Deb Radcliffe. And um, over the years, I've developed a career as the first cybercrime journalist to make it a real beat. Now, I've reported mostly for business magazines, starting with uh, software magazine hired me on the spot. But my first article back then went into Byte magazine called Barbarians at the Firewall. That was 96. That was after finishing research on John Littman's best-selling book about Kevin Mitnick on the run from the FBI. So I have interviewed hackers, cyber uh, vigilantes, one real scary guy named Chris Brandon, who I always thought was going to get me killed. Um, I had the mob call me a couple of times, literally found my phone number unlisted and called me because of articles I wrote. I've also been involved in him accusing the mob of doing things. And when that happens and I got the calls, I would say, you mean you're dealing with Chris Brandon? And they'll say, yeah. And I go, whatever it is, you're going to jail. <laughs> because every time he brought someone out like that on the web, for a lot of it was kiddie porn and things like that back at the time, because that was the first crime to move in, really take space on the web, which was new to everybody back then. So over the years, I've been writing for Byte. That was the first one, Computer World Software, way back when. Um, Upside Magazine um, and everything in between. Right now, I'm currently, my major publisher is CSO, so I write to the executive level now, which makes sense with 30 years of background of writing this stuff. And sometimes I get story assignments that I'll say, but I wrote that 20 years ago, you know, and they're like, it's still relevant today, you know, and I'm like, fine, I can write it in my sleep. So it's real fun to have the knowledge and the background now as I write articles as I interview people now for ITSP myself. And a lot of those people I'm bringing out of the woodwork because they are characters in my cyber thriller series, but they've been fictionalized and they just reveal some of the colorful nature of these hackers, especially in the early days and cyber cops and that Chris Brandon and other vigilantes and everybody in between who literally had to raise awareness through crazy antics back then. It, nothing was as normal seeming as it is today in the cybersecurity community. It was a bunch of rogue people way back when. And so I like to pull that experience into the interviews I'm doing on ITSP magazine as well as in my book. So it's sort of all come together now and I'm considered a subject matter expert, a thought leader, I'm good with words, um, my English teachers told me that they would come out of their graves and actually kill me if I didn't grow up to be a writer. And that was in high school. So communication has always been my thing. And um, video, audio, or written, it all seems to work for me. So, and I've been embraced by the technology community. You know, as a woman, it's been a wonderful ride. That's fantastic. And I'm I'm in awe of the, some, some of the stuff that you've done early on, Deb. And, and I wanted to maybe stick with the past for a moment because I, I believe it's it probably shaped a lot of what you've worked on in your books and the, the new book is out which is what we're going to talk about uh, ultimately here but 
I mean, the cybersecurity and breaches are in the news all the time. So I think people kind of get that it's possible, right? Anything, yeah. anything's possible in cybercrime these days. Um, so nothing's going to shock us or surprise us. Um, whether we may get, may find that it's troublesome if we're involved in it <laughs> on the, on the impact side, certainly businesses, a lot of weird stuff going on at the CISO level as well, from a legal perspective. Oh my gosh. Go there yeah, yet or not, but, but what I wanted to ask you is how, how are the stories? So you said a lot of the things you wrote early days are still relevant now. How were they received differently then uh, from the audience? Because did it take shock and awe to get people to actually care about the story? Or what, what were the nuggets that, that really got people's attention then? Okay, so the biggest words that my editors used on me for the first five years of my career consistently was hyperbole. They accused me of playing things up and making them more dramatic than they were. And I kept saying, no, here's the dot matrix printout that shows how to load the Trojan horse onto the da 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 da. And they're like, I had to bring evidence to my editors that this stuff was real back then because they did not believe it. So awareness is definitely way up. I tried pitching this book idea 10 years ago and it went nowhere. Now it's out there. Book number two is out there. Producers are interested. I um, haven't had any options yet, but knock on wood. Hey, anybody listening, introduce me to more producers. You know, um, it's sort of a, a game that you have to play to, to, to get the story out there. But the story is good. And the basis of social engineering, of a person not present medium, of computers being built on trust relationships, that's what, um, you know, all IP and all networking communication protocols are all about trust. And we have tried to build business on top of this. And no matter how much we said in the beginning, you know, replace, update, secure the infrastructure, whatever you have to do before you start running business over it, no one listens. And that's still going on. They open a new technology, a new shiny new thing. They open it up to the internet somehow, either through, even if they think it's air gapped, it's not. It feels like no one learns the lessons. I think that's the one consistent thing over and over. And the reason I wrote the book, first book, and the second book, I didn't know it was going to be a trilogy when I wrote the first book, but my intention was to aware, bring awareness to general people that are not technologists, but to also tell the story of what the technologists are actually doing to try to fight cybercrime in the background but how do you do that without a bunch of people sitting at computers in boring rooms doing boring things? Um, maybe a big screen every once in a while, but most of the time it's kind of hard to make it exciting. So I had to put, I started the first book with a drone war and we have people shooting out people and control through technology. In the first book, it's human chip implants. In the second book, it's an artificial intelligence that was under development by Globecom when the networks were breaking Globecom's backbones in book one. So in book two, now the bad guys are after the developers who have been building this program under duress, in prison, in work camps. And now we're, we've got an AI that's actually more powerful than Globecom in terms of finding people, their assets, taking them down if you want to, controlling the world, but now you don't need the human chip implants. So that's where book number two, two is going has gone 
Um, and it's all carried through with these characters, Maine, Scianthia, uh, Desolation. He dies in book one, but he's still mentioned as a memory again and again in book two. Um, Wizard, Bassa, these are a couple of older people. Um, Wizard was going to be based on someone in the industry that I won't name until I found out he had an issue with boys in the hacker community. So I had to just make him an abstract character instead of the one I wanted to make him around. He was going to have a different name and a slightly different personality. But there's three generations. All of them are involved in tech. All of them are experts at what they do. Are they all troubled? <laughs> you know. Who isn't? Come on. I know. Yeah, who isn't? But really, that's the part that bugs me about um, stereotypes, mm. about uh, especially about hackers, because these people form really strong communities, too. And so I'm focusing on that. They have to go off the grid because they aren't going to take the human chip implants. They only have each other. So they've got to become unified in what they're doing. And they do. Um, there's some drama and some conflict where Adam doesn't know that Dark Angel is his real father and he's going to take years to get over that and things like that. But these are real things that real people go through. Not this, you know, everybody's a twisted person because you're a hacker. That's that's sort of a stereotype I wanted to get away from. So what's the uh, what's the formula there? If you if you can, if people listen to, I mean, listen if they when they read the book, did they have to take it as a reality that is a little bit make it fantasy, or do do you cross the line? I mean, what what how people should digest your your book in terms of how much is real, how much is not. Can I read one of my reviews that I already got on book number two? Yeah, please. Um, okay, so this is from Michael Zuckerman, former USA Today Washington editor. And he I met him, he was the first one that they ever turned over a cyber beat to. And so I met him at an event when we were both covering a, a cybersecurity thing years ago. He wrote, and this is for book number two, Radcliffe vividly envisions a stark world in which a group of young freedom fighters featuring powerfully drawn female leader and her hacker clans have successfully battled for the release of civilization from digital enslavement by a corporate behemoth. In this installation of her trilogy, Radcliffe's world is emerging into a gradual rebirth of liberty and creativity, which may be short-lived as civilization rebounds from years of digital bondage, the powers that once regained, uh, reigned again find footing and threaten society. This is a whirlwind of cinematic-like drama unfolding in an entirely believable, not so distant future where humankind confronts the dangers arising from society's absolute dependence on globally connected networks. He said it the best, so that's why I read what Mike wrote. So that's the answer. There's the answer. So as you're, I want to connect this to the, the interviews you're doing as well, because I'm, you know, I, I, I poked at the, the, the stereotype a bit there, because a lot of what you've written sounds like it's, it's rooted in reality, rooted in real people and their lives and how they think and what they're working on, the results of their work. And how do you, how do you pull all that together? into a story how, how do you do, do you start with the story and and then you bring the people in to help shape it or is it your 
your time with them over the years that kind of helped shape the story or how does that all shape up? I wish you could talk to some of my sources from 30, 25, 30. <laughs> Let's just say 20 to be conservative. Um, Janine Pashalidis, she used to be the security policy, policy enforcement officer for the Fed Reserve of New York. When I called her to tell her book number one was coming out, you've been talking to me about that for 20 years, she said. And she goes, is Cy in there? And I go, yeah. Is Dark Angel in there? Yeah. So she knew the characters because we'd go tripping around New York after our meeting. We'd go get dinner or something. And we'd, I'd be talking, yeah, I'm going to write this book. And they're going to live in this cave underground. And they are going to reject human chip implants. And they're going to fight Globecom. And, you know, over a few years of discussing this, it, it grew in my head, the characters and the story at the same time. But then you're writing it and you're like, who's going to believe people live in a cave? Who's going to believe any of this? You know, then I go look up people who live in caves. There's a lot of people who live in caves, you know. And so I went back to, well, they're trying to hide from overhead surveillance, you know, but that isn't enough. They've got to hack. They have their own cell towers on the property. They're putting up fake visual images to any overhead surveillance that tries to come in just like you would put a uh, video camera in a loop. They're doing that kind of stuff so that they can still garden and raise chickens. You can't do that underneath the earth, you know? So um, things like that, you have to work out a lot of plot detail. You get the main story in your head, but then you're like plausibility, plausibility, plausibility. So there's a huge focus on that. I would say the only part where I stray a little bit from what may or may not be possible with technology is in book one, I had to come up with a way where if hackers got caught, they wouldn't give away the farm under duress, torture, or a truth serum, right? So I had looked up a lot of stuff about brain implants and, and there really is this bio implant that can dissolve. I had him inject it in his neck and it went to his hip, hippocampus, that part of the brain that's responsible for long-term memory and shuts it down for like 10 years. So when Bilbo got captured and put in a work camp, he couldn't remember anything. So he couldn't give away an entire family who was either gonna be massacred or put in a work camp because hacking against Globecom was punishable by life in work camp or death at the time. So it was there, the odds and the stakes were very high and I had to come up with something and I went as close as I could to reality, but I don't know if that'll ever be a reality, but it's based on existing research today. But you never know. I mean, a lot of the sci-fi from the fifties and sixties or even forties, it's become true. I mean, look at Asimov and robotics and all of that. So you never know, maybe you, you're predicting the future, but Talking about that, let's talk a little bit about the, the new show that you have on ITSP Magazine. And there you do talk already. You have three episodes and you talk to these characters that you are mentioning. I, I listen to that. I'm fascinated by it. They all have incredible stories. They are passions that are outside of the, you know, the cybersecurity, the hacking community, the comic books they're djs they do a lot of stuff talk about aliens one, right? one, leslie is an expert marksman and also bows and arrows and you know when i interview these people i think okay so if the world goes all to hell i'll go live with her because she can hunt for food. <laughs> you know like, it, it's crazy how much good stuff there is in, in everybody who works in our industry really yeah 
And, and that's that's the amazing thing is almost you need to have a certain kind of personality that is not the one that people expect. Like you say, you know, like the community, the the social interaction, and who is not a little bit different. I mean, you you got to be different. If you're not different, you're yeah. boring, right? So. But one thing that in the description of your show, the first things that you say, it's looking forward by looking back. And you mentioned already the history repeats itself. You're writing now about cybersecurity, things that you wrote 20 years ago. So explain a little bit your vision on that. Why are we still making the same mistake 25 years later? Because we can. That's the best <laughs> way to explain it. It's like, why did we blow a comet out of orbit what if there's life on that comet? No one stops to think about that stuff. What if that orbit is particular for the planet it's orbiting? What if it causes some kind of offset for the natural process over there? Well, we did it because we could, and we did some way to test if we could blow a comet out of, out of its uh, pathway. Okay, that's how it is with cyber. It, it's a great place to do business. People have opened it up so much. And remember, now we can watch TV on the internet in the olden days. Do you remember what it was like to try to get like a, a game with X's and O's on the little screen with the little green characters? Like we've come so far. It's about innovation first and figuring out how to secure it second. But I honestly believe that we are at an inflection point. I believe, and I have been looking everywhere for new ways to start sharing information to network. I keep asking, is it, you know, I know we're using mostly light signal technology right now, but do we need something like algae? Do we need to, while we're keeping business going on the internet today, I believe that we need to be innovating something completely different and then switch over to that different, more secure, more reliable medium down the road, because I swear we are not gonna be able to do long distance space flight with the internet. There's a lot of things it's not gonna be able to support and it's time to move on. Um, everybody hates hearing that, especially companies like Cisco where their whole world is built on IP technology. But I think there's two things going on. Innovation first at the, at the price of security. Oh, okay, well, we'll hire a CISO as a, a honorary position to make it look like we're trying to deal with security. Um, and the second one is we are using technology that started in 1980s as a foundation for everything we're doing today. And that's the part that I wish I could see changes in. I look at I look at quantum. I look at, crypt, uh, you know, blockchain. Everything is so computationally heavy that we're trying to do that's going to be, quote unquote, new. It's just going to put more strain on the existing system. I'm not Internet three. OK, it's still IP. OK, again. Where are we going with this? I've talked to MIT. I've talked to um, Watson, IBM Watson Research Labs. I've seen that where we do have strong innovation happening, it's mostly in China. Well, I kind of pick on China a little bit in my series. They've got backdoors and everything they've ever built for us already. Every Apple computer I get or iPhone, it says assembled in China when I get it in my little box. And I go, great. So China's reading and watching everything I do if they want to. Um, there's nothing I can do about that. I use Zoom. There's other apps. I won't do TikTok. But 
we don't have privacy anymore. People think we do, but we don't. And that's another thing that makes me worried is the, the whole globalization thing is good in some ways, in some ways, you know, we're relying on Russia for energy. Now Russia's in a bad mood. So people aren't getting their energy, China chips, other things. And then everything again is very computationally heavy, very hard on earth, rare minerals. And in book three, I'm trying to bring us to a greener world through the use of that artificial intelligence. And that's the only little teaser I'm going to give you on book three. All right. Well, we'll, we'll stay away from giving the spilling the beans on book three, but I'm fascinated by your thoughts on a future where the internet isn't the backbone of everything. And you mentioned algae. I don't know what, what the connection is there. Cause I presume in, in our future world, we still need data and information. We still need to communicate. We still need to store and transfer that information around and make decisions on it. Um, what, what changes in your, in your mind there? What, what, what is different? Well, in book two, the subtitle was called Information Should Be Free. I think hopefully we'll get to the stage where people and their businesses have better control over their information. So people are controlling the information that they're using to deal with their points of business and their doctors and their banks and everything else. That's the first part is people need more control over their own information. The second part is what's happening with our infrastructure. like control systems and things like that. There's a lot of work going on in the DevOps layer. And I also have another publication, uh, Shift Left Academy that I run for Gramatech and it's syndicated on Security Boulevard. And a lot of action is happening at the DevOps layer right now. As you guys know, with the supply chain stuff and the White House and um, issuing um, demands that we get our act together under the supply chain, get more visibility, software bills of materials, the only problem is it's going to create a lot of ledger systems and things that have to be centralized. And I'm seeing the same thing with deep fakes now too, like image ledgers, image digital signatures to prove that you're looking at the real thing. Well, someone has to be the keeper of those. So we've got Nikon, we've got Adobe, and we've got other companies like that working in consortiums to figure out how to verify the authenticity of images now. So all of these keepers, quote unquote, you know, keepers of the images, keepers of the data, keepers of the identity. I really don't know how it's all going to get organized, but it needs to get organized. Does that mean, is that, do you think it's too centralized now and it needs to be decentralized? And I guess the, the question is, is society at large? ready to or and capable of running their own digital worlds <laughs> i mean i can see where where obviously nations are able to break that and do their own thing and even even perhaps regions within the nation within a country doing it um but i don't know if we're we're gonna have personal really personal spaces where we control our own internet and networks and communications and it's called a cave <laughs> it might happen on, it might happen on yeah. meta you know on the metaverse mm -hmm. i we're going that direction and as much as i've been resisting that i'm going to start my research in that pretty soon because if people if businesses are setting up real estate in the metaverse that means business will be and is being conducted out there next it might be a more visual environment 
that will allow people to control their own data better? I don't know the answer. I keep searching for answers for how this is all going to look. And with 30 years experience in this industry, if I can't see it, if IBM Watson Research Labs can't really see it, if Google can't really see it, Amazon, all these big giant companies. And what about Elon Musk? He just showed us that he's going to tamp down Starlink if he doesn't like you. And he's buying Twitter. Do you understand? That's a Globecom environment that I wrote about in book number one, where they own the network, they own the digital chips that went inside people, and they own the data centers where the data was stored. Okay. If we have someone like Elon Musk and satellite communications become the main way of communicating and sending data, and he's having a bad day, he can just tamp it down. That's scary. So Elon isn't the bad guy in my book, but he could become the bad guy in the real world if he chooses to do so with that kind of power. So we, 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 we were talking two days ago. We haven't even published it yet, uh, an episode of, about digital ethics. And one of the main things that came out is the lack of control when things become autonomous. Like the fear is, and I'm going there because you have artificial intelligence in the second book. Good. It takes over, right? So the fear that we have is the fact that it, we don't have a plug to unplug. If the machine goes rogue, you can't unplug it, right? It becomes sentient, it becomes its own thing. And that that's a recurrent theme in every apocalyptic sci-fi. I mean, even when you think about I don't know, Ready Player One. There is one big company that controls everything. It's always that one big company. How can we prevent that? I mean, I, I'm just saying, I mean, do we need to have the, the rebels, the, the resistance, <laughs> like in your books, like in Star Wars? Or there is a way that we should say, damn it, why do we have to fuck it up all the time? I know, right? Like, are we real or are we avatars in a game we chose before we were quote unquote born. I mean, we could go really deep with this, but with the AI thing in my book, I am not going way out there, okay? Because I don't believe AI will ever become quote unquote fully sentient. I believe that AI will be full of programming errors that makes it go out and make mistakes, do things the wrong way. In, in my uh, book number one, they see an AI, or I think it was book number two, and it's starting to do something that they didn't know it was going to do. And one of the girls, the 16 or the 20 year old young one was asking Bossa, the 70 year old lady who's been in it for a long time, is the AI doing that on its own? And she said, it may look like it, but it's only doing what it was programmed to do. Whether it was programmed rightly or wrongly, it doesn't matter. It's doing what it was programmed to do. That's when the AI was going out and finding bad guys in Damien's criminal circle uh, um, syndicates called the circle. And they were all on the dark web and it was disassembling their empires. The finances were going to needy causes, victims and, um, you know, making to help equalize society, which is what the hackers were hoping it would do. Um, it did it because 
I'm not going to name who because it's kind of a secret who programmed it to do all this. You won't find that until the very end of book three. Um, but it was programmed to do all of this stuff. Now, because it was started and most of the code was developed in a Russian work camp, the AI has no ethics about how it does what it does. And therein is the real problem. So the AI, if it has to find someone, it'll go into its medical rep, that person's medical records, no problem. It's so good at hacking because it's an AI that it will hack without even being caught. The hackers are actually watching it, learning how to hack better because the AI is so good at what it does. And they're having a real ethical dilemma with allowing it to you know, breach laws to, to go get these bad guys. And for the, and their need out it sort of justifies them going after the bad guys because the main bad guy is going to kill him if they don't get to him first. And so they have to find him. So that is an AI doing what it was programmed to do. And it was programmed without ethics. So I was very clear in several places in the book that they're questioning the ethics of what they're allowing the AI to do. But the need is greater than the hit on their ethics. So they're allowing it to do it. I don't ever believe that an AI will turn into a Terminator unless someone programmed it to do that. Maybe erroneously, but it's only acting on its programming. Or, or intentionally, Miss Dr. Evil will do that because um, it has a different set of ethics <laughs> to start with, <laughs> where evil is and good. You know let me, let me ask you something. Bias in AI, too. Sorry. Bias in AI. Yeah. So human bias. Yeah in AI. So it may look at a black man or a, diff or a white man differently in the way it makes its decisions because of human bias of whoever coded it. So there's also a lot of errors that can go into an AI like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you this when you, when you, no, no, totally. I love this kind of conversation. <laughs> I can just talk about this, but I want to go back b before it's the wrapping on, on the book. So when you wrote the first book, you, I don't know, usually when you write a book, you have an audience in mind. You're like, you know, this is the people that are really going to enjoy it. And maybe you shape that writing style, the story with who you have in mind. Mm -hmm. now, now you have a feedback on that and you are on the second book. So mm -hmm. first of all, who did you write the first book for? And then were they actually the one that were reading it or you get like that was kind of like unexpected consequences <laughs> where a different audience actually enjoyed your book i'm curious to know that well i wanted to get the message out to mainstream and there were people like my mother and barbara wayman my mother's friends who read it love it aunt mimi's 90 loves the story gets it um super happy teenagers too because the teenagers in book one are now in their early 20s in book two, and the story rolls over to them, much like in The Terminator when it starts out with Sarah Connor and then moves on to her son. Um, then then Sai has to come to the rescue in book two, just like in The Terminator, but this isn't like way out there like The Terminator. Um, so the audience, my surprise is, is that I have a bit of a cult following with the hacker community and the cyber community. I knew they would like the book because it is a gift to them. It really is. If I die after I finish this series, I've done my job. I've made them the heroes that I've always believed they were. I showed the world that they're heroes and that they love it. So I have 2600 Club, which is a huge hacker group 
from way back when. They are very responsive to my posts. I have people hitting me up on Twitter that are, I've never been a groupie before, but I want to be yours, you know, and I'm like, cool, bring it, you know. So sort of like that. And most of those are the hands-on, really deep geeks where I expect it to be crucified by them because they're so pure. And I had to write a book that speaks to both audiences. So I am not gonna spend 10 pages on how to write a shell code to drop it in to a system. Instead, I say there's shell code that doesn't belong there. And I don't go into great depth. It looks like it's doing blah and blah. That's it, you know, move on. Because I want the average Joe to learn a tiny bit of technology, but mostly enjoy the story and understand that tech is fallible, that tech can be used to control them. And please don't ever take a human chip implant. It's not going to be a good thing down the road. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you went there. And, and maybe those were the, the answers to my question already. But I, I wanted to see, and you, you don't have to be specific. And you can say, I don't want to tell you because it gives everything away. But I'm just wondering, is, is there one or more lessons you, you hope people walk away with? After reading the book, is there an emotion or feeling you hope that they that they uh, exude after after reading the book, or or a moment in the book? You have certain things. What what can people expect to walk away with and feel, if you don't mind sharing? Well, first of all, the biggest response I get is everyone wants to know what happens to the characters next. So storytelling is critical, right? If you don't tell a story, no one's going to want to read it. So characterization and these people, it's like they get involved with their lives. They become real to them. And I love that. So the... Um, Can they relate to them, do you think? I believe so, yeah. yes, because I did my best to fashion them, a lot of them around real people or compositives of a bunch of real people to make the stories more believable, make their personalities more believable. So that was a good thing. Um, what do I want them to learn? Uh, mostly what I just said in the last statement, I want them to learn that technology can be friend or foe. It's not just a foe. I could never do my job like I used to, where I had to go to a library to get three-year-old data on a company when I was writing a story. Now I can just go find it on the internet in one minute and I have current up-to-date data. So it's a good thing for researchers. It's a good thing for e-commerce. It's a good thing for everything we're trying to do on it. But it also can be particularly scary as we see what's happening in um, cyber wars, ransomware, criminals and nation states. And it's only going to get hev more heavy in that space, too. And it's amazing how much stuff is happening in society today that I thought was going to be way out in the future, that I'm treating it like it's almost a future thing in my book series. So the other lesson is it's happening faster than we we thought it would. Things are happening around cyber risk and personal and corporate and government in ways we didn't anticipate. And it's happening faster than we anticipated. I think that's probably the biggest lesson. Sounds Sorry. like it's going to make uh, the reader think, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's key. That's what we do with our podcast. We don't, we don't write a book, but we ask a lot of questions. Many times we don't have full answers. And uh, and if the listener right now are like, hmm, didn't think about that. And maybe in this case, if they want to learn more and get involved into a story that 
they learn and they also have fun going in a, in another world in another dimension that's why you read and you listen to 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 stories uh this is it now they can binge on two together Exactly. Yeah. And and the podcast, which, by the way, I have to say, I have listened to the three episodes that are out there already. And at the moment, I said, damn it, this is a good podcast. I wish it was an ITSP magazine. And then I said, damn it, it is an ITSP magazine. <laughs> That's good to have Deb on. <laughs> so we're really excited about all of these. And honestly, very excited to know how many things you are involved with it sounds like they're going well and and i i hope and and wish to go even better i mean what what about i'm gonna turn on uh, netflix or apple tv in the next and i see your show uh, right. that would be cool so it'll take years to produce based on what i've been told and there haven't been any options but four producers have requested copies of nice. the from my publisher very nice that's that's a really good start sean um right I, I had a good time i know book two here we are deb has done another amazing thing and uh a third one on the way i literally uh grab the two books binge on them both think about uh what's real what's possible um i think what's possible is probably also real <laughs> And uh, certainly listen to Deb's interviews on uh, the Sci-Beat podcast, where you get to learn more about the people behind some of the characters. And yeah. Deb, you're a character yourself, and uh, it's an honor to have you on the show and to have this chat with you. Um, you fascinated me with a few points here on, on the future, and uh, it's great to great to think like that. So thanks for being on this as well. Thank you. You guys are great. I absolutely love being on air with you. The very first time I felt like I knew you immediately. Thank you. That's Thank a very, you. very big compliment to, to hear. And with that, links to the last episode, links to the books, links to Deb's profile, and uh, a bunch of other stuff. So everybody uh, stay tuned for those uh, when this is published. Look forward to having you back when uh, the third part of the trilogy comes out there. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society, and some even beyond that.